0: Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we will be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policy and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. We will be delving into and analysing the latest news around tech, geopolitics, finance, global business, entrepreneurship, property, leadership, law, philanthropy, and life. This podcast is available on all platforms, But for those of you who prefer to watch, uh, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews. Uh, You can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Please do leave a review as it helps to get the word out and about. Uh, My name is Ninda Johal. I am the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Awards and co-publisher of the Business Influencer Magazine. And I will be your host for the show. In this episode i speak to dr nashatadu Dusolem, who is the ceo of progressing minds and author of the book the leadership pin code unlocking the key to willing and winning relationships uh, she's also a keynote speaker and is asked to speak on her experiences as a psychologist working with psychopaths the military and leaders in business settings uh, nashatadu has over 25 years of practical business experience across diverse sectors. So what can we learn from studying psychopaths that can be applied successfully to business? Let's pop over and explore. Good afternoon, Nishatar. How are you?
1: Hello, Linda. I'm delighted to be with you here. Yes, great. Thanks. How about you?
0: Yeah, my opening comment first was we're in the same continent and then I realized you're in Norway, so you're a year, uh, an hour ahead. I've, I've spoke to a lot of people from America, different parts of America and of course the UK, but I haven't spoken to them from Scandinavia. Although as, as my band, Acarnik, that I perform with, we have been to uh, that part, Neck of the Woods. So thank you for joining us. Um, my pleasure. Before, before, I, before I kick off and talk about your fantastic book leadership oh. pin code. Um, what was interesting was that you and I met, and I don't, you're going to have to forgive me, I've said this with a few other people, uh, but it's a bit of a difference here. You and I met on Clubhouse.
1: That's right.
0: But but we had a connection, unlike with some of the others, is that actually we both grew up in the back country.
1: You know, the moment I heard your accent on Clubhouse, right. it's funny because, you know, Clubhouse is just a still image. And I heard your accent and I knew exactly where you were from. And that's when I reached out to you, wasn't it? And I said, yeah. I think we're both from the black country, would love to connect with you. Because it's just a very, for me, a very distinctive accent and takes me straight home. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: and that, and that's what led us. And then, of course, right. I quickly checked your Clubhouse profile. I thought, wow, actually... She's done rather well for herself. Likewise. Well, <laughs> I, I think I, I ought to, to go back to shift and say, look, I think there's some some interesting stuff. So you've now, um, so you, you left these Shores, you went into Scandinavia, uh, you've written a book. So just before we go into the book, you're a psychologist, you've done TEDx talks, you've done all kinds of stuff. Uh, what led you to the book? And that might help us, that might help you describe what, what you were doing that led you to the book?
1: You know, the book came about because I was working as a coach, working okay. with leaders in business, and that there's a story to how I ended up doing that. But essentially, I really believed in, in the skills that I'm coaching in. And as I started to coach people in that, leaders in that approach, they would ask me, as they would, you know, have you written this down anywhere? Where can we go back and look at this? And I was thinking, well, I haven't really written it down because it's just from my experience of working with different groups and as a psychologist. So um, I would send them PowerPoint slides, you know, or little Word documents with my thoughts into that. And it was only after a little while I thought, Probably a good idea if I do start to put it into some kind of written format. And I'm not a writer and I never imagined I would would be a writer. So I actually then approached a a few publishers and said, you know, if I was going to put this into a book, how could I do that? Um, And, uh, yeah, that's how the book came back. And it really came back as a book for clients. It wasn't something I was writing to tell the world about what I do. It was really a manual for the clients I was working with and helping them to use the methods I was coaching them with.
0: So let's go back a step. You said you were coaching. You talk about clients. You're a psychologist, is that right?
1: That's right. I'm a trained psychologist in background, clinical forensic psychologist.
0: So when you say you go to coach, I mean, I mean, you tend, listen, if someone says clinical psychologist, it means I've lost a few marbles or something. <laughs> so, so, you know, then that's the perception. But it puts the fear of into got business.
1: into a lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: yeah. But you're going into businesses. So what are you advising them on? And then we're going to the book.
1: So, you know, a lot of coaching is really about, well, coaching is about helping people achieve the goals that they have or helping to identify those goals and then using skills to to be able to help them to get there. And that's essentially what I was doing as a psychologist. I was helping people. In that case, it was people with mental health problems or challenges and helping them to find ways, using the skills I had, find ways of improving their life or improving their their well-being or reaching their goals, whatever they were, in a health setting, and now I was using those same skills, connecting with people, building trust, you know, establishing rapport, and helping them to achieve their goals in a business setting. So I, I use a lot of the psychology that I've I've learned in other settings now in coaching. So there's a huge overlap for me in those skills.
0: Okay, so now to the book, and it's called the Leadership PIN Code, and we'll go into the PIN in a few minutes as well. Uh, but you basically say that there are three elements that you need to conquer. Uh, one is your approach. Uh, and I don't want to do too much of it because otherwise people will hear it all, they won't buy the book. So we'll have to be sort of, <laughs> yeah. we'll have to be We're quite careful. So, yeah. uh, a for approach, uh, B for behavior, and C for conversation. Now, um, I mean, you could take which everyone. The, the B one, really, uh, I found interesting, the behavior. Uh, and and how you approach and talk to people irrespective actually whether your new leader or noted why did you pick the a b and c and, and and do you want to tackle the b and then maybe go a little bit of the c as well
1: you know b for body language and behavior that's what it refers to and it's really about that that part of us that maybe we're not always aware of that is part of our communication we're using words all the time and speaking as you and I are now but we're also communicating in our eye contact in our facial expressions in our use of our arms and and other parts of our bodies. so it was really to make sure that when we're because essentially the book is about how we build relationships and how we build those connections with people and we need to take care of all the parts of communication that we have not just the words that we use and the, the statements that we make or questions that we ask but how that is showing up in our body language. And what research will tell you, Ninder, actually, is that the impact of your body language is the greater part of your communication with somebody compared to your words. In some cases, I think the research suggests it's almost 80 to 90% of the impact is actually how you say things, not what you say. Isn't that interesting? So I really wanted to make sure when I'm talking to leaders that we take care of that part of it, which is so significant.
0: Okay, so let's, let's go step, let's, let's look at that uh, quite carefully. So are we suggesting then uh, that leaders who go into a leadership role, let's take entrepreneurs for an example. Um, so they lack the self-awareness to understand what their body language says. And, and some and some will probably don't realise that actually their body language has said it before they've opened their mouth. Um, is that right? And, and if that's the case, um, don't we learn through life? that if you, you know, there's some obvious signals we all learn from watching other people, um, you know, an angry face, cross face, arms folded. Do we need to, to, don't people know that? I mean, don't people generally know that common sense? Well, why well, I got it wrong?
1: Well, isn't it a great question? Because you'd think that we'd either know ourselves, because we know ourselves, That's right. or that people around us who know us would just tell us. But I'm sure you have experience, I certainly have, where... You found yourself on a video, you know, you've been to been to an event and you've seen yourself on video and caught yourself doing things. You oh, know, I didn't know I did that, and nobody points it out. So we don't actually, as humans, go around pointing out each other's mannerisms and behaviours. It's quite a personal thing to do, isn't it? It can feel quite you might be quite sensitive to that. So, I don't know that we all have that insight. And actually, the more and more I've worked with leaders, it's just reminded me that it's human nature not to know ourselves a hundred percent well there are things that we do that we don't know we do. And people around us are perhaps going to be kind enough not to point all of them out all the time. That would make us a little bit neurotic, wouldn't it? So I don't know that we do know all of those things. And I think in a business setting, which is what I I wrote the book for, it's really important when you're trying to communicate with people to get them to, to perform, that you're aware of that. You're aware of some of the things that, you know, maybe you're not, maybe making the message that you're trying to communicate more effective or maybe getting in your way that could be helpful for you to know. So that's what I was trying to work
0: on and point out. Let me me pick something you said, Um, just picking that up, because you're talking about body language and and how you come across. Um, You said, I'm trying to find the line now, you said, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, You say, first impressions don't count. So I'm taking this body language thing now. Now, Malcolm Gladwell says the complete reverse. He says those first two, three seconds can form an opinion of someone and it's very difficult to get that back. So which is which? Which is the right one? Because you do say the first impressions don't count. What, so what, do
1: what, I, what I say, and it's a great, you know, I, I get asked this a lot and I think what's important to distinguish here is what's the impact that you're trying to have? And I'm talking about having influence, the ability to actually impact somebody to the point where you're able to create... A mutual understanding and have an influence with each other right make something happen when we talk about first impressions it's those first three seconds they're not necessarily influential they'll have an effect on me i'll make a judgment about you based on those three uh, seconds it's probably not going to be very accurate as humans were not very good at first impressions actually we tend to bring a lot of our own biases to those first three seconds I'll make a lot of judgments about what I see and what I hear that are based on my experiences and might have no truth whatsoever in the reality of what you're doing but for influence we need to go past those three seconds we need to learn the person beyond that time frame so what I mean by that is Don't use first impressions as a way or a basis for having influence with somebody else, believing that that is enough for you to understand them, know them, and then be able to work with them. Influence lasts longer. When we learn people and we understand that we're more likely to be able to have positive impact than those first three seconds.
0: You're a new leader, and the first thing people do and say, and I'm picking up your impressions here, this is my 100-day plan, they say. This is what I'm going to do. They do it without knowing anyone, without having walked around, asked people what they think. They've looked at spreadsheets, they've looked at balance sheets, and they've gone for it. What's your advice to a new leader when they walk into an environment? And a new leader, not in a sense, well, it could be, it could be the first time they're in a leadership role, but but it also could be they've walked in into a new place for the first time what should they be doing to have that positive impact you're talking about and that positive impression whilst knowing they're under this pressure to deliver this vision and this tactical plan for the next 100 days
1: you know when new leaders come in whether they're first time or new to the organization they they often are coming in with some kind of change agenda you know yeah. something they want to revitalize change completely have some kind of impact on and what you see is those who come in and who race in and just impose those changes because they believe them to be true, uh, they may well have an impact. Well, they will have an impact. Whether they'll have a positive impact or not will be needed to be proven. But what we see is that leaders who take the time to understand the organization and take them with them on that journey by explaining this is the reason I want to make these changes I think these changes are important more importantly the leaders were most affected by the ones who harness information they learn their organization they take the time to understand what what's been here before I turned up what's important to take with us into the change and what's important to leave behind and you can only do that through connecting with your with your organization speaking to them understanding them and then communicating why the changes you want to make are so important. Actually, even testing out whether they're still relevant might be important. So I would say that the the most effective new leaders are those who take the time to learn their organization and then introduce the change with a good understanding and explanation of why that change is so necessary. They'll have much more of an engaged organization that wants to follow them on that journey afterwards.
0: And we will go into conversation, you'll see in a second, but let me just pick that up again, then, because they walk in. Yeah, I, I think they should take their time. They should try to understand what's going on. But there are pressures from the stakeholders. Um, in there, when you talk about body language, you do, do talk about how you should be dressed, how you should dress. And, and there's a reason I'm asking this question, because I've seen a gradual change. I am not about Scandinavia. I think I can guess what Scandinavia get up to. Um, but how important is that, the way you dress? Because it's back, getting back to your body language, your behaviour. How important is it, do you think, the way people dress? And I say if somebody oh. never wears a tie, and, and people do look at me sometimes. Uh, not, not- you know,
1: let's, let's first of all just be clear about what we mean by dress code or what we dress. It can be anything. I'm not talking about... Um, For example, that, you know, it needs to be a suit and tie or it needs to be anything particular. But it's understanding that what people see when we communicate with them is also what we're wearing. And if we think about, you know, I refer to this in the book, dress code is used to communicate in many parts of our lives. You know, we see the police wearing a uniform. Now, part of that uniform has a protective nature and it's got equipment attached to it. But part of it is the signal effect that. You know, you, you know who we are and what we do, and it tells you through that, that dress code what you can expect of us, and the colours that are used and the, and the materials that are used, they're all also part of the communication of power and mandate. When we think about going into an interview situation, we tend to dress for the interview, don't we? It might be if you're going, to, um, you're going into a job where it's very, very casual. You know the environment that you're walking into expects people to just be in jeans and T-shirts, that so you'd, you'd mirror that. You'd, you'd go in dressed and not overdressed. On the other hand, if you're going into a a law firm, for example, and you know that they like or they seem to, you've done your research, you can tell that they're very much into, you know, dark suits and white shirts and ties. Well, you would mirror that and dress accordingly. So my message really is think about the impact that you want to have and think about whether it's helpful or not helpful to try and mirror in your dress code the impact that you want to have. So turning up to an interview, for example, you know, where you know your interview panel are all going to be very, very suited and formal. And it's a very conservative environment. It's probably a good idea to, to think about how that's going to show up for you in the way that you dress and not turn up in your evening clothes where you'd be going for a glass of wine with you, you know, with your friends and, and, you know, very, you know, evening and casual, for example. So it's just to be very conscious. To your question, I think it's very important. I think people would like it not to be i certainly get a lot of pushback from people saying, you know, it shouldn't matter. I should be able to be exactly the way mm. I want to be. And I say, yes, I agree with you. Human nature will also tell you that people will interpret the way you communicate through the way you dress. And people do. We use dress code to express ourselves. Some people love to be, you know, very uh, colourful and radically different to, the, to their norm where they live. And other people like to blend in. We're trying to communicate something either way.
0: So how you dress does indicate
1: your behaviour? It, it will, it will, I don't know if it indicates your behaviour, but how you dress will be a part of the behaviour that you're communicating with. Yeah, yeah.
0: Got it. Uh, moving on to conversation, this is interesting. Um, so tell us a bit about the conversation, then I've got a, a couple of questions to ask you around. So what do you mean by we've gone into behaviour, uh, body language and how you dress and sort of all that? So what do you mean by conversation? Because this, I think, is really huge.
1: It's so the ABC, your approach, which is how you, you prepare your mindset or the research that you do with people, is the, the, the biggest part of getting prepared for a conversation that you're going to have with somebody. That's right. And then I talk about the body language that will be the nonverbal part of that, the things you maybe need to be aware of that will add to your message. And when we get to the C, which is the conversation, that's really the words you're going to use. And we know the power of words, right? We know, for example, that you know, asking uh, very direct, blunt questions might create defensiveness in some people. We talk a lot in coaching about using open questions that help people to share more and feel more comfortable and give you more data. So the C is really the art of questioning and responses and timing that I learned as a psychologist, building rapport with some very difficult and challenging people very much the toolkit that I was uh, was trained in is what I'm sharing in the ABC and conversation is a part of that. So I share with in my with my audience in the book some of the questioning types and techniques I was trained in that can help you connect and build trust, give you more information, help you to go deeper with the person that you're trying to build a rapport with.
0: So would you say um, that you've now picked up the approach let's just pick that up So most things that go wrong, are the lack of planning before you have a conversation? Is that right? I so would you say haven't so. you haven't planned for that conversation, because you haven't planned for it, you haven't worked out the outcomes, and because you haven't planned for it, you haven't thought about what the other person thinks, and because you haven't planned for it, you haven't planned for a set of scenarios that might come at the end and know how to prepare for them. Right. Is that about right? Is that is That's that about right? right?
1: That captures it very well. It's very much about thinking ahead of time, particularly if it's going to be a tricky conversation. You're going into maybe somebody who's in conflict with you or is going, likely to show some kind of emotional reaction to what you need to talk about in a work environment that can be a leader giving you know, poor performance feedback to somebody or you know, they, they've got a disagreement, difference of opinion and they can't find common ground. So thinking ahead of time, how, what questions would be helpful so that I don't make the matters worse? So that we try and find our common ground. What kind of uh, setting do I need to create with the tone of voice I use? That's also part of conversation. You know, what, how will I show that I am collaborating, that I'm sympathising or empathising with this person so that we have a chance of this working out well? And thinking through the questions and thinking through the sequence of those those responses can be very helpful. If we're very impulsive, we don't plan and we go into yeah. those it means that it, what we often see is that people allow their emotions to get in the way, and they say and do things that make things perhaps worse.
0: So, so here's here's a question then. So, so just taking that into account, that planning, that understanding, is that better for a more duty to introverts than extroverts? Because introverts tend to shoot from the hip, don't they?
1: Introverts, did you say?
0: Extroverts. Oh, try. extroverts. Sorry, extroverts I was going to say. Okay. Tend to shoot from the hip. Whereas introverts tend to be a lot more methodical, both in their approach and, and the way they talk, and it's very deliberate. Is, is that, am, I, am I just making general... I mean, there's a
1: whole other area of psychology about introversion and extroversion. And, and when we talk about it um, in the lay person context, we often overgeneralize what extroverts and introverts are and what they do and who they are. And actually, there's a lot of nuances to, to that. But what I would say is that if we stick to the generalization and we don't get yeah. into exactly all the details of, of what might make them also very similar is that people who have an introvert way of processing, that's what I refer to it as rather than personality that they like to think before they speak. They like yeah. to take in information and think about it before they come with a response are more likely than to do that careful planning before they respond. than perhaps somebody who, who processes in an extrovert way meaning they get information and the first thing they want to do is discuss it with somebody else want to share that thought out loud because they do their sense making with other people whereas the introvert processors prefer to that that work themselves before they share so there may be some truth in there I wouldn't go all the way to say that it makes you know one group better or worse than the others because then personality comes into it and and you know uh, their experiences comes into it so there's many more things that impact the way we express ourselves than introversion,
0: extroversion. The reason why I asked that question around leadership is people judge it in those stark terms. They, they tend do. to think, as a leader, yeah. we need somebody outlandish, somebody really on the front foot, somebody goes for it. But unfortunately, the, the, the problem is they're not going to have that approach. We you suggesting in the book, which is a lot of planning and getting yourself ready, and 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 when you know we have a recession or when there's a real big big uh, problem around business, and people start to look, at well, who's in charge? And when they look at the extroverts, they say, well, you hey, well, that's the problem. We should have had introverts in. Um, so it, it's just into. And, and the reason I ask that question is because some people try to change their very being because they think the trend is for an extrovert. So I'm going to have to act like an extrovert, even though actually I'm a lot more. And, and really, it's it's that, really, when you look at leadership and appointment, recruitment, and you can see what people are looking for. And politics is very much you now driven by personality than competence.
1: So what we're looking for in leadership, when I think about it from the research and theoretical perspective, and what, what we're seeing in terms of what is effective leadership, there's a lot of research, actually, to show that people who are let's say whatever introvert is, more introverted, are as effective leaders, if not sometimes more effective leaders than people who are very outgoing or showing more extrovert traits. Now, my view on this is it's much more to do with the individual than these gross generalisations. I've seen very effective, seemingly extrovert leaders do a great job of engaging, building enthusiasm, inspiring, Mm -hmm. motivating organizations towards goals and changes but I've also seen seemingly introverted leaders have that same effect but through different ways because it's not just about those parts of who they are it's how they communicate it's their it's their passions for what they do you can have introvert style leaders who are incredibly passionate about they do it what they do but it just shows up differently but yet they're able to take their audience with them because they are communicating in a way that helps people to understand the importance of it. And extrovert leaders can do the same. So I don't buy into the whole idea that that's enough to decide in your recruitment strategy, whether a leader is the right leader or not that you go with introvert versus extrovert. I think there's far more to it than that.
0: I'll tell you what I've been leading to. It's my next question, which is I think the killer question and I've been leading to it. And that's what just what that sort of context is now. I was, I was amazed when I saw your TED talk on psychopaths. I thought, good grief. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So so the question then is um, so you've written about the role of, and this is really interesting, fantasy.
1: Right.
0: Uh, and, and how it plays in leadership. And that's why I wanted to get that context set now. Mm-hmm. So we've worked out extroverts, introverts, and planning and behavior and conversation. So now let's look at what plays behind all this is fantasy now. We, we hear about crime, premeditated crime, and what drives these people to do what they do. And it's that fantasy they want to, you know. So so how does it break that down into business? I mean, do leaders have that? Or, and are they driven by that? And what does that look like? And can we extrapolate from crime?
1: Absolutely. So let me tell you how I extrapolate yeah. From yeah. my work with psych- working with people who are classified as psychopaths, to how I've encouraged fantasizing leaders so my background in working with offenders in maximum security one of the roles I had was to to look at you know what what how do they plan their offenses what processes are they using to you know think about organized crime you know, there's a lot of planning, a lot of TV programs and films based on this too, where we see a lot of planning is required to kind of, you know, if we're going to rob the bank, we need to spend weeks figuring out how we're going to get past the security and the alarm and what when are the shifts and when there's less people or more people. All that planning is, there's a physicality to that planning. We sit down and we map things out. But one of the things I learned in, in studying offenders was that those who were very premeditated tended to do have very imaginative, processes fantasy processes where they actually imagined if I do this then what might happen you know step by step drawing out in a visual way in their minds a little movie if you like of what it is that they wanted to achieve and in doing so they would be using fantasy a way of testing out scenarios risk scenarios well if I do this what might happen you know if I if we if we go at 10 o'clock in the morning mm, that might be too busy if we you know don't know when the shifts are for the, the security guards, we might find ourselves you know, coming across one of them. Uh, so they tested out these scenarios and we called it the snowball effect of the fantasy. So you start with a simple idea, I want to rob a bank. And then you start to imagine, you know, getting up in the morning, getting dressed, where are you going to take the car? Where are you going to park? And it snowballs into a bigger and bigger movie, right? So we all do this actually. If you think about, again, let's use the interview as a scenario. You're going to an interview for a job. You imagine yourself, In the room, those of us who really want to be well prepared, we might picture ourselves walking into the room. How do I want to dress? Back to our dress code conversation. Where Am I going to sit? Shall I take a notepad with me and a pencil or not? How am I going to open with my first question? We play the scenario out in our minds. And the whole purpose of fantasy in the offender group was to prepare themselves for the event. Now, the more I studied fantasy, and I did my actual doctorate in that subject on the, on how we, the neuropsychology of it, you know, where does that process take place in the brain and, and how does it evolve? What I found was that those people who use fantasy to prepare tended to be better at executing their plans. Wow. Because they were, they were really working through some of the problems that might occur. They were able to think about, you know, if then... If this, then what? So they were sequencing the event. They were using their imagination, their fantasy to make plans and then they had a better chance of executing that plan than if somebody impulsively ran into the bank and tried to pull off the the heist. So when I looked at and I started to coach leaders, I found that those leaders and I was watching very successful leaders, very effective leaders, and I studied them and I would talk to them and I'd find that they were also they weren't calling it fantasizing, but they were imagining scenarios they were working through beforehand, you know, visualizing themselves going on to give a presentation on a stage. They would mentally rehearse that in detail and then go ahead and execute it. So they more or less knew most of the things they were going to do. That's why it's important for leaders, because what I see is effective leaders use fantasy or imagination, if that's the language I think they would probably use, to rehearse and plan what they need to do. They might do it individually, or they'll do it with a team and create scenarios and visualize scenarios and work through scenarios so that they can execute on their strategies or their priorities. I always say, and it's it's quite a controversial statement, that, you know, some of the, the offenders I met who were very into planning and premeditation was some of the best strategy executioners I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm not saying that as in glorifying what they did or or saying what they did was right, but the the method that they used, they were managed, until they got caught, managed to get into a very clear plan of execution based on that fantasy process. And I think that's something I see leaders who are very effective, able to do. So I think the leaders who struggle with execution have a lot to learn from that perhaps
0: it's interesting, we've only got to hear the word mafia, just think of mafia how they've managed to continue to as a legacy Um, and and you're right, uh, when you read some of the reports, when people are convicted, then they go into detail uh, on how they did it Um, I've said this before one of the the best um, I did a bit of teaching and one of the best students uh, was somebody I'm not glorifying it ran a very successful drug operation and, and the detail this guy went through to get the product sourcing it getting it cleaned up finding his customer base right. distributing working the margins out and this is a guy that i was told could never even get what we call a gcse this guy numerically was just so unbelievable so it is interesting that and of course that that forget his name, the the Cuban guy who got locked away around a big empire uh, across loads of activities, lots and lots of activities. And you think, well, he's employing the most amazing management techniques to get across. And and, and, and you do wonder why these individuals do succeed in what they do. And that's why I was intrigued with, Mm. with the word fantasy and just seeing what we can learn from people on the other side of the fence. It's quite extraordinary,
1: really. I mean, as a psychologist and neuropsychologist at that stage, when I was studying it really from, you know, what's happening in the in the software of the brain. You know, where is this taking place and how can we uh, figure out whether we can actually influence it in some way? You know, how can we make people better fantasists in for adaptive reasons, not for crime? Then I was thinking more about, you know, how can we use that to help them to think about other ways of living their lives? other ways of improving their circumstances um, and certainly in, in the business environment how can we use it in a positive way but it really did bring home to me the importance of thinking through in advance and the power of visualization now nindy you've probably come across it I know I certainly have of people who use meditation who yeah. use visualization in other parts of their lives to think about you know goals that they want to achieve you know they picture think of athletes I work with a top sports team as you know at the moment a national sports team and the power of visualization in those in those sportsmen is very important visualizing the game in play visualizing the goals taking place visualizing the win as a motivator but also an opportunity to rehearse how they're going to get there super important so fantasy, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, of course, it was interesting working with offenders and, and seeing how they used it, but I'm really now much more interested in how we use it in everyday life and how high performers like athletes are able to use it to actually be top of their game.
0: Let me ask you another question around leadership style then. The example you've just given, and I'm thinking of the Cuban drug lord, drug baron they call him, I'm pretty certain, listen, I don't know, don't, didn't know him at all, but one would think to run the mafia or something like that, you need a very directive style of leadership, you know, boom, we are going to do this. Uh, and, and of course, if I take football, um, that used to be very directive. So all the coaches were people who could shout, people who would coerce, half-time throw bottles around, screaming at people. But of course, football has changed. It's become more of a coach. You don't call them football managers anymore. You call them coaches. Um, and they use a lot more EQ, understand each individual. Um, so so how do you balance the two? How do you get someone? I mean, if you take, I mean, we all agree that in crime, you take certain bits, in other words, forget the directive, but understand the imaging. So wondering how you balance that. And, and do you think EQ is now here to stay and directive coaching? The way that the mafia works, that's now gone and it'll never ever return. Or and it can only maybe exist in the legal
1: crime. You know what I and I was going to mention when we were talking about, you know, the the organized crime, you know, that the leadership, if let's if we're going to call it that, is much more about command and control and yeah. fear-based, fear-based yeah. instruction. That's I right. wouldn't necessarily I mean they are leading people, there's no doubt about it, and I'm sure they're willing followers in some parts of those organizations but a lot of it is based on fear and, and command and control not leadership as i would consider to be effective leadership so let's move then into what is effective leadership and you're describing it they're very much in the sporting world and there is a move much more now to understanding that coaching when you're coaching high performers it's not just about the skill set that you're coaching them in so if i'm a great footballer myself and now i've become the coaching manager of the team i might have know exactly how they should play the game but does that mean i'm an expert in how to communicate that to them can i get my message across in that moment in a high-pressured environment when you know the game's at its most stressful peak and i've got to shout across because it's you know there's distances involved and there's you know raging adrenaline how do i get my message across so that the other person can hear it I think there's been a huge shift over you know, how long in sports, but certainly in business over the last 20 years, a recognition that knowing your trade is only one part of great leadership. And actually, the greater part of leadership is how you communicate. So being an expert C. in your field is not enough. You and that's need... your
0: C, that's your conversation.
1: That's it. That's the C. Well, the B and the C. In fact, I yes. was coaching um, somebody in sports not so long ago, and we were talking very much about... It's not just racing in to speak. It's being very aware about how you're communicating that non-verbally, going back to my earlier point. More than 70, 80% of what you're saying is showing up in your facial expressions and your tone of voice. The reason a lot of charismatic politicians make it is not because of what they're saying, but they're building an enthusiasm and their charisma, if you like, is carrying their message further than just the words. So the words are only one part of the message. So I do think EQ is becoming more and more important in leadership across different industries. And I think it's necessary because we're beginning to recognize and COVID has taught us this. Now we're more remote from each other, uh, physically remote, that talking through a screen demands something else of me as a leader than I'm used to. When I could just walk into an office and speak to somebody, I've got to understand how to connect. I have to have that emotional intelligence to know how to speak to people and, and communicate through this screen, for example.
0: Do you think before we go on to um, your experience at Harvard and negotiation? Do you think we should all be trained psychologists to survive? <laughs> do do, 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 do think you think? Do you think you talking to me? You're at an advantage here because you're looking at my body language. You, you understand the words I've used. Uh, should, should you know? Is is this the failing of society that we've not been taught how you know your ABC approach, even at school or college, or, to say look. This is reality. How the world works, and so for you to get I on. Think,
1: I think it would be terribly boring if we were all the same and we were all learning the same thing. So I, you know, I'm all for everybody bringing, you know, their own skills and experiences, and and you know, mine's just one as a psychologist, and even psychologists yeah. are not all the same. You know, I'm very different to another psychologist who yeah. studied a different type of psychology. What I will say, and you've really highlighted that something that's, I believe, is very very important, and particularly in you know in my in this generation. Um is this, we need to have focus in, in schools and in our education system somewhere on encouraging children to demonstrate, and if they don't have the skills for it, learning the skills of empathy. I do believe at the heart of everything, it's not all, there's a lot of skills we could teach children and adults, but I really think if we can start with empathy, the ability to understand somebody else's perspective. And I say in my TED talk that you watched, it doesn't. The empathy doesn't, for me, mean agreeing with other people, that we need to run around all agreeing with each other. It's about that ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and just understand why they believe what they do, or they mean what they do, or they are understanding why they're behaving the way they are. Because through that understanding, we can then connect with that person and see another perspective. It might change ours, or it, we might be able to change theirs if we can find that common ground between us. Empathy, I think, is at the heart of it all. That's what I would really be focused on, encouraging them to to have more focus on in schools.
0: Now, that follows very nicely onto negotiation because you've got to understand the other half when you negotiate. Right. Um, But is, is empathy as easy as you say it is? Because sometimes you are so entrenched in the way you think, my way is absolutely correct and nothing else Will budge. You just, you're just completely convinced the other person is totally unre- unreasonable, totally. Um, so, so that's the first thing. How can you create that self awareness, particularly if you completely think you're right? How do you, how do you flip someone over to the other side? I mean, that's.
1: I mean I, mean, I mean, I regularly meet people who, and often I get asked, and this is why people invite me often into coaching. Is you know, I'm not having the impact. I'm trying to have. And quite often, if the person hiring me, the leader hiring me will say, you know, I feel I'm being really clear. I know what I want, I know what I need. How do I get them to do it? You know, the team or whoever it is. Or they'll be frustrated at the fact that they have a very clear idea and nobody's agreeing with them. You know, why isn't my idea is the best idea? You know, I'm the CEO or I'm the, the the senior leader and I've got all this experience. So how come they're not listening to me? Of course they should. And I, my first question is, if you're not having the impact that you'd like to have, then you are, there's something missing. Let's acknowledge that. And you can even if you think you have the right answer, there's an opportunity in that gap between what you want to have happen and what's happening. And let's explore the opportunity. That's where I always start. If you're not having the impact, let's look at what might be missing. And nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, what's missing is... The, the person who believes they're right, who's holding onto that view so strongly, is not taking account of the other person's interests or motivations or drivers to agree with them. They're just not interested in the other person. They just want to have what they want to have happen. It's a one-way conversation, and conversation is never one way. I always say, if you, if you think you're right and you're telling somebody else, don't call it what to do, it's not a conversation, it's an instruction.
0: And is that you your are. advice then? Is that your advice to leaders then? on how to negotiate. So we're talking about employees, managers, customers, stakeholders, suppliers. Right. You you name it, you know, what's your advice to them then in that negotiation process with actually a multitude of different people from different so what's your advice? Very to them? simple,
1: Linda, and I'm I'm pretty straightforward on it. You need to get out of your own head and into the head of the other person. It always starts with what's the other person's interests, motivations, reason why they should listen to me. And if I can't answer that, then I don't understand their world, and therefore they will never really listen to me because I'm not speaking to why they should be bothered to help me or support me or agree with me. So get out of your head, learn the other person's interests and motivations, ask yourself, why, why would they be interested in this that I'm offering or asking for, and start there. That way you can hook what you need into what they will also get and create a win-win. Interesting.
0: A lot of time, again, back to preparation again, isn't
1: it? And you need to take the time to prepare that. I mean, you think about how much you would do for somebody that you know and therefore potentially trust. So the more we know somebody, the more we can trust them, right? And the more we're likely to do for that person. So learning people, learning what drives them, helps us to build that trusting relationship. And then we're going to get much more out of that relationship. than if we just go in with an ask, we don't know them, we maybe don't even care to know them, but we expect them to do what they're told. The you talk about,
0: um, and, and I suppose it's down to negotiation, probably. You, you talk about eight dysfunctional beliefs in leadership. Um, we won't go through all eight. Uh, just pick the three top ones. I mean, you've started to hint already, you know, lack of empathy, negotiation. So, so give me three that you find when you, all your research and all your coaching, sitting with sports people, uh, leaders coaches um, what are the three things that typically they just get wrong leaders well those dysfunctional
1: get... beliefs came from my experiences of working with leaders over a long time and observing leaders that these were the eight typical patterns that kept coming up for leaders who were getting stuck and when I worked or asked them about what what was happening these were the beliefs that were getting in their way One of them that comes up most often is, well, I've been doing this a long time. I've been a leader for a very long time, so I must be a good leader. You know, time is my educator. I've done it for 30 years. And my challenge with that is you could have been doing the most ineffective things for 30 years. You could have played football for 30 years. doesn't make you a great footballer. You could have been leading for 30 years. doesn't mean you're an effective leader. And the importance of time is not about the passage of time, but what you do with it. So, you know, what kind of self-development have you done? What kind of feedback have you taken? What kind of mentoring or coaching have you used to improve your leadership? Have you looked at different styles of leadership for the different teams? So that's one, you know, time is not the teacher of of leadership. Uh, The second one that comes up quite often is this idea that, well, I've got the title. I am the leader. They should just do what I'm telling them to. You know, why else was I given the job? Aren't they supposed to just do it? I've got the mandate and the power. It's back to this command and control. Probably, and I'll say to the leaders who have that belief, you'll probably get some effect by just telling them what to do because you've got the power and they may fear you firing them or giving them negative reviews, but it'll have a short-term effect and it will demoralise the team over time and they will probably leave. So you'll end up alone. The far more effective way is to think about, rather than telling people what to do because you have the mandate, inviting them to work with you to create a collaborative environment in your team so you're not entitled to be a leader you are a leader and i believe it to be a privilege and when you start treating leadership as a privilege you start to behave in a different way so that's the second belief i find comes up over and over
0: we haven't got time, but that sort of links to servant leadership. I didn't give you the third
1: one, but it's exactly that. No, Surround go on, go, on, go
0: on, go well, well, The third know. one that
1: always springs to mind is this idea that I've, I've read loads of books, <laughs> including mine, uh, or, you know, I've been on, I've been on training programmes, so that's it. You know, I, as long as I can say I've done that training, then that must mean I'm a good leader. And my view always is. And why my book is so practical and simple, it's not at all rocket science what I talk about is because it's about the practice, the art of practice. And why I love working with athletes and sport teams is because they understand the need to train to be better. And so I say the same to leaders. You might read the book. You might have attended the programme. You're not training those muscles, getting feedback, and then adapting. You're not a better leader just for having attended the course or read the book. Yeah, it's
0: the same as when... Um people say, I've got all these initials after my name. Right. So so they're, they're pointing to their IQ. Look, look how clever I am. That makes me better qualified, IQ, as opposed to EQ. Um, and, and that causes a few problems. A um, couple of things then, uh, uh, before we wrap up, um, it's been a testing 18 months. Mm. And it's been a testing 18 months globally for everybody. Uh, no one's exempt from this. Uh, people in leadership positions had to really adapt very quickly. Right. Uh, they couldn't use the body language, the B. Uh, they were picking up the C a lot, uh, conversations. Um, obviously, mental health becomes an issue, so suddenly empathy becomes important. Uh, you can't really direct people as much as you used to. Now it's about a coaching. How was your day today? Have we got things done? And with hybrid working potentially here to stay, what should leaders now be thinking about in terms of maintaining that leadership of either even small organizations or big ones in this new world now, you know, picking up everything you said. I mean, the one thing I wouldn't say is become a criminal, but apart from that one, uh, what else? I mean, what, what other things would you recommend somebody now in this new world in terms of managing their people?
1: You know, it's, it's been a really tough period and I've worked with a lot of leaders who have been trying to manage all of those challenges you describe, working remotely, parts of the team here, part elsewhere, working through the screen, you know, people being very stressed and unwell physically and mentally unwell and, and them having to learn skills for how you work with people who are showing very different types of stress than we've seen before. And what I say to leaders, there's a lot to deal with. So the first thing to do always is look after yourself. First, put your mask on yourself as a leader, because if you are stressed yourself, struggling yourself, overwhelmed yourself, then it's going to be very hard for you to give the, the, the care and attention required to your team. And I think you know, that's important for leaders to show up as good role models to their team for what they want their teams to do. So look after yourself, You know, have good routines, make sure you're taking care of yourself. And then when it comes to leading your organisation, I think what it's really asking of us now post-COVID or in the transition to whatever the new world order is going to be is it's not enough to know the job and to know the business and expect people to perform, even if they were so before. Now we really need to reach out and connect at a very human level, and that means learning your people. So if I ask them to do anything, I always say to leaders, if you only can tell me who your people are by the tasks that they do, or the titles that they have you don't know them get to know your people i want you to know them so that you can actually take care of all of what they bring to work which is you know stresses that might be going on at home with their partners or with their children or other aspects of their lives we don't need to know everything but we need to have empathy for the fact that the person turning up to work is more than their task and their title so show some interest in the rest of their lives and and what they bring into work apart from just that
0: very quick nuance. So I wasn't going to ask you this question, but I'm going to now. You can get though as a leader too close yeah. to your people, so that it becomes difficult to have that con- that awkward conversation. You can, can't you? And it's Absolutely. just finding that
1: finding, finding that, that balance. balance. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, you know, in that respect, it's about being open enough to show interest. You know, how are you? How was your weekend? How are the family? And letting the other person lead you to how deep they want to go, or how much they want you to know, what we find is if you have developed a trusting relationship, you know, you're the kind of leader where you are consistent and reliable and, and visible and present, and you have an engaged way of working, then people will want to share what's going on with their lives with you. You won't have to go deep. You won't have to pull. It will come to you. People will want to come and tell you, you know, do you mind? I've had a really tough day. Uh, at home yesterday and, and it's, it's impacted the way I work today. So build trust, build empathy, have compassion as a leader and it will follow.
0: A couple of the observations some entrepreneurs have said to me during COVID. One was he said um, he became a psychotherapist, psychologist rather right. and he said I was dealing more with people's home problems because they were pouring it out so he said it was something he'd never done before, and he had to adapt. Uh, The second example I had was um, in the UK, we had a system of furlough. uh, And he said, choosing who to put on furlough, how to react from the ones who were put on furlough, thinking we're not as important. Then putting people who weren't on furlough into work, saying, I'm working 19 hours while Mr. X and Mr. B are sitting at home sitting in the garden, Mm. and they said finding those two extremes and somehow maintaining that team, they said, was very, very challenging because you didn't know how people would spin to being either on furlough or not on furlough. And, and of course, the other one about being forced to develop an empathetic, EQ-based coaching style when they've never had to was a big, huge challenge for them, and they... So we were suddenly sort of dealing with things that had nothing to do with the business. You know, but it's interesting,
1: you know, Linda, to, to, to that point, you know, there's so much that we had to learn. I have seen that same challenge, you know, how we manage the furloughed people versus those who are working. And and we should, you know, and I've certainly said to, to leaders, don't assume that the ones who were furloughed are having a great time. They, they probably would have wanted, so many of them would have been happy to work. And the ones who were working, maybe some of them would have had some relief by not having to work. So there's a lot, you know, we need to be very mindful of assumptions that, that this... This is the way people would like to have it. But the other part of it is if we take it all away, all these challenges of learning EQ and and et cetera, and bring it down to one thing that we all, most of us, the majority of us have is empathy. We have it at home with our families, with our loved ones, with our friends when they're in need. And I always say to you, just, just remember that you're showing these same skills in other parts of your life. Just bring them to work. Don't assume that you don't need to show up in the same way at work when somebody's struggling as you would if they were a friend at home. So if you would be showing empathy at home or with a close friend, you can show empathy at work. It doesn't mean you need to be their friend at work. It doesn't mean that you need to go all in and give them a hug, quite often that's inappropriate, but to show that concern for somebody else in the work environment, for something beyond just the tasks they do for you or the jobs that they have. It's as human as we can be. You don't need training in it, I would hope.
0: We've run out of time. So I'm gonna ask people to buy the book and read something about the ladder inference, which we just haven't got time. But um, I've got one last question really. Um, Looking for the next three years, and you don't have to give three, but if you were to give up to three tips now for leaders, as your last takeaway and said, right, this is where we are today. And we're sitting in August, my three tips for you leader for you to still be where you are in 3 years time you must do the next last next three things if you stick to these three things you'll have got you you'll have done a good job what, what were those three things i know you talk about empathy and things, but what would be those you know, three I'm things i'm going
1: to go straight to my model because my model is all about the the ability to create meaningful connections yeah. through persuasion influence and negotiation that's pain right those are the skills yep. we're using to connect with people and the three things i say that if you do these three things just move the needle one percent of these three areas you will build more meaningful connections that can develop sustainable relationships and that is to prepare your approach when you're having meetings or conversations or interactions to be conscious of your body language and your behavior and to plan the conversation you're going to have whether it's at work whether it's in a, a, a regular business-as-usual environment, or in huge changes and stresses. Those three things will be the conduits, will be the enablers of you building the relationships that will help you manage whatever it is you're facing.
0: And it's as simple as that.
1: And it's as simple as ABC, Linda, yeah.
0: Well, look, yes, ABC, look, it's a, it's a great book. It's a, it's <laughs> Thank a great you,
1: book. I appreciate you. Uh,
0: it's a pin code, uh, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships. And, you know, nobody can operate on an island uh, to get anywhere in life, whether it's business or personal, involves other people. Absolutely. And managing those relationships and making sure they're winning relationship requires preparation, requires meticulous planning, and having a high level of awareness is what I think I'm hearing from you. Absolutely. So, so, it's, a, so it's a great book. I bought it on Amazon, so it's fully available on Amazon um well look um it's now three o'clock in the uk so four o'clock norway time that's right it, the sun is shining i'm assuming that's the case there hopefully it's
1: just completely clouded over with rain oh. and, and grayness i won't even show you but it's quite the opposite so uh right. yeah we're heading into the weekend well, with a bit of rain
0: it's not very often i get a chance to say our weather <laughs> no. um, of course you would know that having come from the uk well look have a great weekend thanks for sparing the time it's a fascinating read and um and and, and, and you know, you, sometimes you can learn a lot from people who do the wrong things, but if you can use those techniques and do the right things, I think we can all benefit. Thank you very much.
1: Love that conversation, and uh, and great to speak to you. Thank you so much and, for having me.
0: And, and have a great weekend.
1: You too. Have a great weekend. See you. Bye Bye.
0: Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode and if so, please do leave a review. It all helps in promoting the podcast. Oh, and by the way, have a great day.